headed uh, into week four of our series, Making Sense of the Bible, where we're, we're talking about what the Bible is and how we interpret it. And uh, our, our, our thesis statement, our theme uh, during this series is, is that intelligent people can take the Bible seriously. And today we're talking about the relationship between the Bible and science. And I know some of you maybe, you know, you, this is something you think about a lot and it's, it's very interesting to you. Others, maybe you think it's kind of a boring topic or, or just it's too heady of a topic and hopefully you'll be able to change your mind a little bit about that. But it's, it's an extremely important topic that we're going to go in today, uh, the relationship between the Bible and science. So let's go ahead and watch the video. Mark Twain once said, it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that really trouble me. It's all the things in the Bible that I do understand. That's what really troubles me. There are a significant number of people who, when they read it, are just troubled by what they find. And the Bible, which was meant to draw people to God, actually becomes a barrier for many people. It's not a lack of faith that leads us to wrestle with the Bible. It's because we have faith that when we find something that seems inconsistent with the character of God, that we wrestle with that. I hope when people are done reading this book that they have an appreciation for the historical context, the culture of Scripture, how the Bible was put together, who wrote it, why they wrote it, and, and then uh, how to make sense of its troubling passages so that they can read the Bible and they can hear God speaking through it. We've had two connect groups meeting uh, for three weeks now and living rooms full of people having great discussions about this book authored by Adam Hamilton there that you saw, Making Sense of the Bible, and uh, I've just been super impressed by our leaders and, and also by the, by the participants because I've tried to participate in as many of them I could, as I could. And um, the, the, the questions, the dialogue that I hear tells me that we're living in a time when there are people who are people of faith, or people who want to follow Jesus, or they're trying to deconstruct, or they're trying to reconstruct their faith, and they have questions or thoughts that simply are not being dealt with by a lot of churches. I don't know if anybody wants to say amen to that or not, but it just seems like there are... Uh, there's a disconnect between where a lot of Christians are in America and where a lot of churches are, where a lot of pastors are, frankly. And just to hear you know, your thoughtful um, questions, comments, conversation has been encouraging to me, but it also, it also has proven to me all over again the need for what we're doing in this church and what we're doing in this series. We have a lot of people who are out with health problems right now. Two of our band members were in the hospital this week. Um, and... Uh, and a lot of people who have really struggled, um, it's kind of amazing. And there's a really high percentage of people. So, uh, and it's fall break, and so attendance is kind of low. But we're moving in the right direction overall. And we're praying for people who are struggle, struggling right now. But it reminds me that what we're doing here is important. And so we're going into week four of Making Sense of the Bible. And in this series, we're answering questions like, is the Bible anti-science? Why does God seem so violent at times in the Bible? We're talking about the Bible and violence next week. Questions about the role of women. Like, why would Paul command women to keep silent in the church? We don't practice that here. So how do we interpret the Bible? How do we make sense of passages like that? Is Jesus the only way? How, how does God view human sexuality? We're going to talk about that the last week of the series. Um, things like, is the book of Revelation really a guide to the end times? That, that really does affect American foreign policy in the Middle East. It has a daily effect on our lives, that belief. Is it really that? You know, how do we look at some of these major questions that Christians have about, about uh, the Bible? And, we're, of course, we're using Adam Hamilton's book, Making Sense of the Bible, as a guide. And that's what we're discussing in, uh, in these connect groups. Back in 2007, there was an evangelical research company called the Barna Group. They conducted a survey of 20-somethings that were not churchgoers, 20-somethings that were not a part of church. And they asked them what they thought of Christians. 20-somethings not in church. These people now are 30-somethings not in church, but what they thought of Christians. And they published their findings in a book uh, entitled Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters. And the statistics that they found have only increased. Pew Research released a similar study a couple of weeks ago, and the numbers just keep going up. But um, as, they, uh, as they asked these unchurched 20-somethings about their view of Christians, this is what they found. They found that uh, 72% of these unchurched 20-somethings felt that Christians were out of touch with reality. And when they pressed them a little bit more, they were talking about the sciences and just reason and living in fact-based reality. So 72%, almost 
three quarters said out of touch with reality. 75% said Christians are too political. This was in 2007, mind you. What, what direction do you think that stat's gone now? 85% said hypocritical. And 91%, the most, uh, most common response in 2007, 91% was anti-gay. And so they published these findings. And then I'm going to read one of the most brutally honest paragraphs you've probably ever heard about faith and what a lot of people think about Christians in the United States. So it's going to be on the screen. Many outsiders believe Christianity insulates people from thinking. Often young people, including many insiders in the church, church kids too, doubt that Christianity boosts intellect. We discovered a range of opinions on this, but Christianity is not generally perceived to sanction a thoughtful response to the world. Ouch. One comment illustrates this image. Christianity stifles curiosity. People become unwilling to face their doubts and questions. It makes people brain dead. The vast majority of outsiders reject the idea that Christianity makes, I love the quotes, makes sense or is relevant to their life. So part of the sheltered perception is that Christians are not thinkers. Now, if we were to take a poll inside this church, your people who are a part of a church, I'm wondering if the results would really be that much different. Because I know a lot of people who may not tell their pastor, but secretly, they probably think a lot of the same things. And they're looking for some kind of a faith where, yeah, Jesus is important, and I want to follow Jesus, and I want to reconstruct. I'm not sure what I believe, but I want to build something that's worth following, and I want to raise my kids in that if they're parents. But they have, they have this view that is easy to see in our culture that Christians are anti-intellectual and just don't want to... Think A more recent finding by the Barna Group was that 49% of church-attending teenagers, these are teenagers that go to church, and this was a couple of years ago, so these are high school students now who go to church, 49% of them agree that the church seems to reject much of what science tells us. So half of the high school students in church are feeling like, yeah, my faith is not really compatible with science. My church wants me to reject science and, and thinking. When I was in a private Christian college in Ohio many years ago at this point, we, uh, we used a, a textbook for one of our uh, philosophy classes written by Oz Guinness, and it was called Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, What Evangelicals Don't Think, or, or Why Evangelicals Don't Think, and What to Do About It. Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, Why Evangelicals Don't Think, and what to do about it. And this is a guy who is an evangelical. Oz Guinness writes, anti-intellectualism has become the scandal of evangelicalism. Over the course of 200 years, it has gradually become part and parcel of our evangelical identity. Yet today, the failure to love God with our minds, like Jesus commands us to in Matthew 22, as well as our hearts, is not only a sin. It's crippling. It's a crippling cultural handicap in an age when ideas have greater consequences than ever. So when thinking Christians, when people who do want to follow Jesus and, and believe in something and reconstruct something, when we have the same perceptions and we fail to apply intellect to our faith in the Bible, when we don't ask our questions, when we don't speak up in the group, when we don't speak up in church, then what we're really doing is we're surrendering the Bible. We're surrendering the story of Jesus. We're, we're, we're surrendering God's redemptive narrative in the world to anti-intellectual, more fundamentalist types who may have an axe to grind toward science and towards thinking. And then all that we have left, all that our children see, are examples of, of people who have no interest in thought or compassion Evangelicals are more likely than the general population here in America now to support torture. And, and that's just kind of the world that we create if people who want to follow Jesus surrender the scripture, surrender faith to more fundamentalist types who just have an axe to grind. And then, of course, it just gets into the water that, well, the Bible's full of contradictions because fundamentalists are always saying it's not. 
And the Bible's not full of contradictions any more than a library is full of contradictions. We talked about that last week. The Bible's a library. You wouldn't go to a library and say, well, I read 10 books and they all disagree with each other. Those aren't contradictions. But the Bible, it gets accused of being full of contradictions because the more fundamentalist types say, oh, no, everything agrees with everything else in the Bible because that's their view. And so we need thinking people to point out that, no, it's, it's not full of contradictions. It's a guide when rightly interpreted. You get the idea. That's what we're trying to do in this series. If not, we surrender faith and Jesus to fundamentalists. All right, so today, as we talk about the Bible and science, there are some people, like I said earlier, who, who you're on board. You came excited for this. There are others who have no idea why somebody would be excited for this. And I just want to remind you, um, for example, uh, you know, I, I just shared about a health scare we had with my son just a few weeks ago. And, man, if, you, if you've gone through something like that, I really, I, I didn't fully share how it affected me, how it drove me to my knees. Uh, and it turns out he's okay. And so we're so thankful for that. It gave me all over again a new appreciation for medical science. That when my kids are sick, I have a, I have a place that I can take them where there are, are incredibly intelligent people who have researched and studied and, and that there is hope. And just like I said, there's so many health problems in our church, you know, visiting people in hospitals. And it, it, it's so... Uh, inspiring. I'm so thankful that we have medical science. A hundred years ago, we did not have this, what we are blessed with now. And no, of course, doctors don't know everything now, but oh, the infant mortality rate in the United States in the past 100 years has dropped by 90%. Many of us, let me just remind you, you know, in love, let me say this to you. If you're bored by science, there's a good chance you're alive right now and able to be bored because of medical science. It's just the truth. Like many of us wouldn't even be here. Our parents wouldn't have made it. And so, wow, I mean, they're doing God's healing work. And that's just one branch of science. I mean, the car that you drove today to come to a church service was designed by, by engineers and scientists and researchers. Every single thing we do in our lives are affected, you know, are affected by the sciences. But the, the Christian church has a history of seeing science as a threat. So Galileo was a physicist and astronomer who lived from 1564 to 1642. He promoted a discovery made by Copernicus. Of course, you know this, about a century earlier called heliocentrism, that the earth revolves around the sun. Were Copernicus and Galileo celebrated by the church for their discovery? Wow, thank you so much for helping us to understand God's creation and how the earth revolves around the sun. Is that how that played out? Not exactly. How did the church respond? They placed Galileo under house arrest for the rest of his life. They banned the publishing of his books until after his death. And he was forbidden to publish any more books for the rest of his life. Uh, why? Well, because Psalm 93 reads, The Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established, firm and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. Psalm 96, the Lord reigns, the world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Because... By the way, if you don't know, psalms means praises. Psalms is a songbook. These are song lyrics. These are poems. Song lyrics are poems. Because of poetry, Galileo was placed under house arrest for the rest of his life. Because of poems. Right? I mean, and you just, now we scratch our heads. How is this possible that this kind of damage could be done to human discovery and the science is based on a literal reading of poetry? It's like roses are red, violets are blue, you know, arrest that guy. Like, that doesn't rhyme, but I just, I didn't plan that. But you get the idea. Like, why, how, how could thinking, intelligent people act like that? That's the relationship that faith has had with science. Of course, we know that in more modern times, it's the theory of evolution that has uh, been seen as a threat by some Christians who believe that Genesis chapters 1 through 3 are, are literally scientifically true. That they're not poetry, there's not literary craftsmanship there, but 
It's, it's a science book, and they believe that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days, as it's presented in Genesis. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of literary craftsmanship there, and, but they take that literally, and then they count the genealogy list in the Old Testament, and it turns out that, you know, if you count those up, that it's about 6,000 years total from now, back to, back to that time, and, and they believe in what's called six-day creationism. And, and there are, are you know, well-meaning people who are they're nice people, and they love God, and they love the Bible, and, and they send their kids to school, and, but they, they believe something that is completely at odds with the findings of the world scientific community based on a literal uh, reading of Genesis 1 through 3, which is highly uh, crafted literature. Of course, there are other uh, Christians who have a different view who love the Bible and they want to follow Jesus and they read Genesis the same way, but they can believe that God created the universe without it having to be six literal days 6,000 years ago. But do you see the recurring theme of reading the Bible as though there is no poetry, as though there is no craftsmanship, as though it's a science textbook? Webster uh, defines religious fundamentalism as a movement in the 20, 20th century Protestantism emphasizing the literally interpreted Bible as fundamental to the Christian life and teaching. So religious fundamentalism is based on this literal wooden interpretation of ancient texts, a library of texts that we've been talking about in this series. And then the natural outgrowth of that is that it puts a religious fundamentalist at odds, not just with science, not just with evolution, but with human discovery. Because because scientists are using their faculties of observation and human reason and the scientific method, observing and testing and coming up with hypothesis and, and, and then coming up with theories and then testing that. And that's just, you know, we wouldn't call it this, but you used that method to get here this morning. You used reason to know that you needed to turn right on that street and not left and, and you needed to go this way to get to the school you used your human faculties, the same faculties that scientists are using, to get you here this morning, to know that you need to brush your teeth, you know, you need, you know, to get dressed and get you here. But, but religious fundamentalism puts faith at odds with those same faculties that we have to use every day to get through life. And in this topic, at least, with, with the relationship between faith and science, it's usually evolution that, that uh, is seen as the threat. So I saw a Facebook post recently from uh, a friend of mine who uh, I went to, went to college with, the same college I talked about earlier, and, and uh, they posted about visiting the Creation Museum in Kentucky. How many of you know what that is? Have you heard of the Creation Museum? Okay. So the Creation Museum is a 70,000 square feet, $27 million facility located in Petersburg, Kentucky. Admission for an, an adult is $30 at least last time I checked. It's an exhibit that promotes young earth creationism, that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days 6,000 years ago. And of course, the consensus of modern science is that the universe is, is about 14 billion years old and that the earth is 4.5 billion years old. So the difference in these two views, if you find this boring, and, and what this means for life is the difference in these two views is there's a way of viewing the Bible and the world that leads you to think that the earth is 6,000 years old. And the other view that your children are going to hear in school is that the earth is 14 billion years old. It's, it's not like we can meet in the middle there. Like, like let's just split the difference at, you know, 7 billion. Or, that's not how that works. We're talking about a way of viewing the human brain and human discovery and the consensus of modern science around the world in a way that creates an enormous gap in how children who are being raised in this how, and how they view the world. By the way, the United States is about the middle of the pack among the developed uh, countries of the world in science. About the middle of the pack. And, and so there are kids who are raised with this view, but... Before uh, the uh, Creation Museum was built a few years ago, Aaron Caproni of the Cincinnati Business Courier wrote, Later this year, Answers in Genesis, that's the group that owns the Creation Museum, is planning to begin construction of a theme park featuring a full-size replica of Noah's Ark in Williamstown, Kentucky, Petersburg, Kentucky. The, the museum is looking for investors for the project, which will be funded in part 
by 62 million in bonds issued by the city. So they were, at the time, they were, there was a, you know, a funding controversy there. But the founder of the Creation Museum is not a scientist and he's not a theologian. He has no scientific or theological credentials. Neither. And um, I watched a video of him speaking and he is a, he is a persuasive speaker. He, he, he knows how to convince people that his views are, are right and that people of faith should embrace his views. And actually, Bill Nye debated him. If you remember this, a few years ago, Bill Nye, the science guy, uh, challenged this guy to a debate at the Creation Museum. And, and uh, you know, the Creation Museum, if you were, if you were looking for a, just a literal representation of what you read in Genesis, well, then great. Well, it's, it's a fun thing. You see an ark, and, and you see the Garden of Eden, and all these things, and it's fine. But then if, if a person chooses to believe, no, this is the way it is, and if you don't believe this, then you're not a good Christian then, if, of course, that puts that person's views at odds with the consensus of, of modern science around the world. So, for an example, here's a, here's a photo of a young girl uh, standing next to a carnivorous dinosaur in the Creation Museum because they believe that dinosaurs existed 6,000 years ago and that humans uh, and, and dinosaurs were uh, uh, contemporaneous with one another. And so... You know, the consensus of modern science would be that dinosaurs died out tens of millions of years ago. But that's part of, uh, you know, the exhibit there uh, at the Creation Museum. And, and um, so that's one view. And that's the view that maybe some of you were raised with. And that's the view that a lot of churches, frankly, around here promote. Six-day creationism. Well, so what we, can, what we can do here is actually dive in to these accounts for the next few minutes. And what we're going to do here is we're going to read the Bible. How's that for church? What we're going to do is we're going to actually read the Bible. We're going to look at the creation account or accounts, depending on how you read them, and we're going to learn a little bit about them. And, then, and that's important in and of itself, but then we're going to wrap up um, by looking at what they mean. And what they mean, even if you are bored by uh, a talk about science, is not boring. And so we're going to look at these creation accounts and then talk about what they mean for us. So first of all, just heads up before we look at the scriptures, the first creation account is from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. There were no chapter and verse divisions in the first manuscripts of the Bible. They were added in the Middle Ages. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3 portrays a cosmic-sized God who speaks and light happens. This is, this is universe-sized speaking the universe into creation. The language in Genesis 1 uh, through chapter 2, verse 3, is almost poetry. It's almost a song. It's high prose, almost like the Psalms. It's, it displays literary craftsmanship, like uh, words are repeated in multiples of 7, 3, and 4 in Hebrew, the original Hebrew that it was written in. There are mathematical patterns in its writing. On days one through three, environments are created. And then on days four through six, those environments are populated. There's a symmetry in the account. And then, of course, on the seventh day, God rests. And if you have any Jewish friends who are observant, what do they do on the seventh day? They rest. Why? It's because it's the Sabbath. And so it's a way for, uh, for observant Jews to establish, well, God did this. God creates. God worked for six days, and on the seventh day, God rested, just like we do. And so if you're a little Jewish boy or girl, 2,000, 2,500 years ago, and you say, Mommy and Daddy, why do we keep the Sabbath? My friends don't keep the Sabbath. Why do we keep the Sabbath? Well, it's because on days one through six, God did this work, and on the seventh day, God rested. And so we see even the theological underpinnings of that passage. And then the second creation account, and that's what I'm suggesting here, that there are two, starts with Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And we go from a cosmic-sized God who just speaks stars into existence down to a garden. And God just comes hanging out in the garden. God comes walking in the garden. It's a completely different setting than this cosmic God. And God's just hanging out and, and chatting with Adam and Eve. All right, so let's actually read now from Genesis. And I've underlined some words that are important to take note of. And then we're going to come back to them. So, you ready? Let's read. In the beginning, who? God 
created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Tohu vavohu in Hebrew. It rhymes. Science textbooks don't normally rhyme. But, but there's, there's rhyming and alliteration throughout this passage in Hebrew. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of? You guys will catch on eventually here. The spirit of? Was hovering over the waters. Spirit also means wind or breath in Hebrew. The spirit was hovering over the waters or the wind of God was blowing over the, or the breath of God was blowing over the waters. Hebrew is just, it's an amazing language. And who said? God said, let there be light. And there was light. Saw that the light was good and he separated the light from darkness. Called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And of course, that's a, re- a refrain that is repeated. Let's go on here. You think I'm being facetious, but you're going to get the point here in just a couple of minutes. And who said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. A vault. Interesting. Okay. That's like a a physical, hard, solid object. A vault. So, made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. So there's water below the vault, the solid thing, and there's water above this solid thing. All right. And it was so called the fault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, let the dry ground appear, and it was so, God called the dry ground land, and he gathered waters called seas, and God saw that it was good, and verse 11, and God said, let the land produce what? Vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees, and a land that bear with fruit and seed in it, according to various kinds, and it was so, the land produced vegetation, and then, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Let's go on to the next slide. The heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. They're completed. We're done. We're done with creation. By the seventh day, God had what? Finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating he had done. So who creates? God. And is it finished? Looks to be finished. And you saw the kind of the order of when God creates vegetation pretty early on. Okay. Let's go to the the next uh, slide here. This is going to be chapter 2, verse 4. So I'm suggesting that what we just read was the first creation account. And then I'm suggesting that this is the second. This is the account. Isn't Isn't it amazing how just voice inflection can create a difference in how we read things. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the who? What? You thought I was just being facetious, you're right, repeating God 35 times. Who? That's interesting, isn't it? See, in in chapter 1, God is Elohim. We have a new name for God now in chapter 2. Verse 4. See, it's, it's finished. Elohim has created in seven days. He rested. It's done. Blessed the Sabbath day. Made it holy. Kids, that's why we observe the Sabbath. This is the account. And now we have a new name for God. Lord, in Hebrew, originally would have been Yahweh. The proper name for God. And Yahweh means something like, I am what I am. Or I will be who I will be. Um, Paul Tillich, the theologian of the 21st century, said, God is the ground of all being. So Yahweh, it's like, I am reality. That's my name. That's a pretty cool name. Yahweh. And then the, the Jewish people came to see the name Yahweh as so holy that it shouldn't even be pronounced. And so they inserted another word in place of Yahweh as a euphemism for Yahweh, and that was the word Adonai, which we translate in English as Lord. And so we have Elohim in Genesis chapter 1, and in 2 verse 4, we have the beginning of a passage with Yahweh Elohim. Or Elohim Adonai. There's a new name for God here. Now verse 5. Now, no shrub had yet appeared. There's no vegetation. Remember chapter 1, vegetation's pretty early. Now we have no vegetation on the earth and no plant had sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. There's no rain. There was nobody to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Well, like that doesn't quite fit our view of the world now with rain, water, the water cycle, rain comes down. But if you have a lot of water up here and you have a lot of water down here, well, then you have a lot of water to come up in streams. 
and water the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. So in chapter 1, humans are created last. And in, in 2, they're created first. And so there's, there, there are lots of differences here. Um, and in the 1800s, uh, some, some uh, Bible scholars started taking notice of this. And then um, they discovered some amazing things that actually as you read throughout Genesis and throughout the first five books of the Bible, you see that these passages alternate between just God or Lord God. And you can just read your English Bible. You could go home and in 20 minutes you could see how all this works. There are passages where it's just Lord God and then it switches back to God and then it switches to Lord God again. And sometimes those passages present various views of the world or God or what God does. And they form what's called the documentary hypothesis that perhaps Genesis and the first five books of the Bible are they're not written by a single author. You remember Adam saying, if, if Moses is the author, you know, it actually describes Moses' death. So Moses probably didn't write that. And, and so how was it written? Well, it appears that it's a compilation. That there is the compiling of traditions that are important to us. That even Genesis itself, even the f- first five books of the Bible, within themselves, are actually libraries. We have a library within a library where there were traditions about who God is and who humans are and how God created, because it's not just, these aren't really chapters about science. They're about who God is and who we are. They function as though we're looking into a mirror and we learn about what it means to be human and, what, and who God is and our relationship between, between us and God and our relationship between each other, our relationship between us and the rest of creation, the earth that God has created us to take care of. We are created to take care of God's creation. And so, and obviously you can see that the order of, of you know, vegetation and, and creation is different. Light's created before the sun in chapter 1. Well, that doesn't quite work that way in our universe. It does make a lot of sense, however, if all the cultures around you worship the sun. And you want to say that God is greater than any physical object. God is greater than these gods, the sun gods. Well, then it makes a lot of sense. If the authors are trying to make a theological statement, well, then it makes perfect sense. It doesn't if they're trying to write a science book. Of course, the sky is described as a solid object, which we, which we know is not the case today. So it appears that these accounts are written to answer theological questions, not scientific ones. Now, this is not new. The conflict between faith and science is not new. So way before Darwin, in 415 A.D., uh, Augustine, who was one of the most influential Christians who ever lived, Augustine's influence on Western culture is incalculable. So Augustine influences our everyday life, whether you realize it or not, even in the way we think about the world. And as Americans, uh, he's had a massive influence. Augustine at that time wrote uh, the literal meaning of Genesis, and in it he writes this, It not infrequently happens that something about the earth, about the sky, about other elements of this world may be known with the greatest certainty by reasoning, or by experience, even by one who is not a Christian. So you can figure out things about our planet by your powers of observation and human reason. And it's, it's the beginning of the sciences. And then Augustine says, It is too disgraceful and ruinous, though, and greatly to be avoided, that he, the non-Christian, should hear a Christian speaking so idiotically on these matters. His word, not mine. And as if in accord with Christian writings that he might say that he could scarcely keep from laughing when he saw how totally in error they are. And in his time, he was speaking to six-day creationists. And Augustine actually believed in an instantaneous creation. Something that we might later think of as the Big Bang, but not quite. This is a long time ago. But he's making the point that when Christians insist on reading the book of Genesis, as though it is a science textbook, and that this is how God created, disregarding literary craftsmanship, disregarding the theological questions that seem to actually concern the authors. And we read it as though it's a a, a scientific textbook. He said it is a disgraceful and ruinous thing. That was 1,400 years before Darwin was born. 
I wonder how many Christians in 21st century America, when we're being accused of being non-thinking people, I wonder how many Christians are aware of that quote. That there have been various views on Genesis and of the entire scripture for a long, long time. A few years ago, probably after giving a message, you know, something like this, a guy wanted to meet with me. And uh, I found out pretty quickly that, you know, people would, they would give me a reason they wanted to meet and then we would get there. And that wasn't the real reason, it turns out. And so that happened. It was a bait and switch. And, and this guy kind of cornered me and he, he's like, I got a question for you. And, All right, man. And he, do you believe in sin? So, of course I believe in sin. Right? sin. Sin meaning that human beings do things that are wrong? Like, yeah, of course I do. And like, why? And he's like, well, you know, I don't... And he kind of went off from his background because he was raised in churches where the pastor would say, well, you know, there are preachers out here today who don't believe in sin. And he, he just think, he had kind of pegged me as fitting some stereotype that he had heard about. And I, and I said, yeah, I, think, I mean, sin, I think, is like the most easily observable thing, actually, when it comes to faith. Like, yeah, nobody's perfect. Everybody, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. Sin in the Bible means to miss the mark. It's an, it's an archery term where you shoot an arrow and it just falls short of the target. It means to fall short of, of the goal. If, you shoot a, uh, if you're playing basketball and you, and, you, and you put up a shot and it doesn't even hit the rim, what does the crowd start chanting? Air ball, air ball. Sin is an air ball. That's the definition of sin. I said, of course I believe in sin. And, and he just, he, he kind of had pegged me as some other type of Christian that he didn't like, that he had been warned about. And so, yeah, I believe that, that humans sin. Yeah, sure. Um, and I discovered, you know, as I got older, that in his background, the, the more fundamentalist church that he had been a part of, and in my background too, because I was in a little Baptist church at 16, you know, when I came to Christ, I was baptized, and... and um, you know, the sermons were always, you know, about how bad you are, and they're designed to make you feel very guilty, so you'll come to and kneel at an altar at the end of the service, and you'll receive Christ, or you'll confess your sins, and that was every church service. And so there's a technique. If that's what good results look like, there's a technique to getting people to come down. It's like closing the sale. Get people to kneel at the altar, so you have to, you have to tell them how bad they are, and then you give them, you know, you infect them with the disease, and then you give them the cure. And they come down and they kneel at the altar, and that's how you know it was a good sermon. And, and so that was kind of the religious environment I was raised in. And so I knew that there was this emphasis, this probably overemphasis on sin. Now, don't get me wrong. Like I said, I, yeah, I believe in, in human sin, for sure. I, look at our world. It's not hard. I mean, it's not hard to, of course. There, this, you know, sinful things happen every second of the day, and we all share a part of that. And I, and I believe that. But what seems to happen is that, that more fundamentalist types of religion, including the, the folks who are behind the Creation Museum, they tend to confuse the word human and sin. And Susie, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here. They seem to confuse sin with human. So, yeah, I believe that we sin, yeah, absolutely, and we need to confess that and grow, and that's what salvation is. God, he loves us as we are, and he loves us too much to leave us that way, and that's what growth is all about. But when you start to confuse sin with human, then you think that just humans are bad, period. That it's not that we're human, created in God's image and there are good things about us and redeemable things and God wants to partner with us and Jesus died on the cross for you and loves you and raised for you and has a, has a, you know, has a calling for your life and wants to partner with you and, do, and can do good things through you, you kind of start to lose sight of that and it's just that humans are bad. And then you get things like this. And Susie, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. In the Creation Museum, uh, there is this photo inside that pits the Bible against human reason. We can't trust our brains and our powers to observe and, and to make hypotheses and theories and testament to discover. We just have to go with a literal interpretation of God's word, which is, of course, what the founder of the Creation Museum believes and charges 30 bucks a head for you to get into. And why... Why are those two things pitted against each other? Well, see, if humans are just bad, period. 
If it's not, well, yeah, we sin and then God wants to redeem us. But if we're just bad, well, then human reason is bad. If, if you are just bad, then you're not capable of thinking and discovering. And all you're capable of doing is being a droid who just believes whatever the founder of the Creation Museum thinks. And, and you just follow him because he's the one who knows the way. Because he's following God's word. And you can't question anything. You can't think about that. You can't, you can't use your own eyes to discover because you're bad. That's what I think lies at the root of this conflict between faith and science. If you go to the next photo, they contrast um, human reason with God's word about the solar system. And then this one here, we'll just stay here. He actually uh, picks on Rene Descartes and the statement, I think, therefore I am. And Descartes wasn't even making a religious statement. It was just, I, I, he was like, how do I know I exist? Because I'm thinking right now. And then, and then the contrast there on the plaque is God says, I am that I am. Yahweh, that name Yahweh. So it's like Descartes versus God. And so Descartes, a philosopher in the, from the Enlightenment period, of course. And, and so thinking, right? Do you, see, do you see the clear message there? Thinking bad. Believing the Creation Museum founder's view of the Bible, good. It's not hard to see, is it? Human reason, bad. Thinking, bad. Believing whatever I say, good. We, we see how that plays out in religious groups and actually in cults. Yeah, I'm not trying to name call, but that's how it works. That's how it works. So the same human reason that enables us to learn the alphabet, that enables us to read, the same reason that, en that enables you to read what's on the plaque is something that is bad. And so they're using reason to try to attack reason. What I'm doing is I'm trying to, I'm trying to clearly point out that intelligent people can take the Bible seriously and that, yes, we're all sinners and we all need God's grace and redemption. Of course we do. That doesn't mean that your brain is bad. That doesn't mean that God, who created you with a brain, if God's the creator, God created you with that brain. And, and God can, can use your brain for all kinds of amazing things. If we go back to the creation narrative, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness. So that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. In the ancient world, it was believed that, and some of you have heard me say this before, it was believed that the image of God, humans who are the image of God, were the kings and queens, like Pharaoh. It was taught that Pharaoh was the human image of God. And what does the scripture do here? It's not just Pharaoh. It's not just kings and queens. It's not just the elite of society. It's you. It's everybody. Everybody is created in the image of God. And not only that, it's not just that the, you know, the kings and queens are rulers. No, we're all rulers created in the image of God, and what are we tasked with doing with our authority? What are we tasked with doing? To care for this world that God has created. We, in, in our language in corporate America today, we would say that each and every one of you here is created in the image of God as God's senior vice presidents. That's what we would say. If you work in a company, the SVP in your company is a pretty big deal. And you were created in God's image to be a senior vice president in this world. We all are. And we are tasked with continuing God's work in this world and caring for God's creation. So if, oh, if that's true, no, your brain's not bad. Yeah, we all have sin and we all need redemption, but your brain's not bad. Actually, your brain is created in God's image and God wants you to use it to care for his creation, to continue his work of creation as we sang about earlier. Your brain's not bad. Human reason's not bad. The same human reason and faculties of reason that you use to get ready and, and drive here this morning, those are the same ones that are used to make scientific discoveries, and those aren't bad. You should, you should lean into them and use them. Why? Because God has given you that gift. 
created in God's image. By the way, just as an aside, this verse, uh, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, was, is thought to be an influence on John Locke, the political philosopher John Locke, who was thought to be a major influence on Thomas Jefferson. And so as an American, when we read the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They come from this verse. This verse is really the bedrock of what America is supposed to be about, that we are created with dignity. In America, everything's political now, and we're super divided, and, and, uh, and um, we're just supposed to be angry all the time. I want to show you this, uh, this chart, uh, and um, it's going to be hard for you to read this, obviously, but um, this charts the amount of carbon dioxide in Earth's atmosphere um, up to 800,000 years ago. And this is uh, taken from ice core samples where they can measure the amount of carbon dioxide in Earth's atmosphere. And you can see it goes up and down throughout the ages, throughout the eons. And then right here you see this spike on the right-hand side. And that arrow, the first arrow on the bottom, says the 1950 level. So in 1950, we surpassed the highest level of carbon dioxide ever found on Earth back to 800,000 years ago. And then you see the white arrow at the right. Does everybody see that? And it says the current level. And so you can see that carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, it fluctuates quite a bit and has throughout time. But now it's way higher than it's ever been in measurable history. Now, of course, you talk about the climate and out come the claws in 21st century America because we're all divided and everything's politicized. I just want to point out this chart wasn't put out by Hillary. It wasn't put out by Trump. It wasn't put out by MSNBC or Fox News. This chart was put out by NASA. And when we say, you know, it's not exactly rocket science. Here it is. These are rocket scientists. It is rocket science. Some of the smartest people on the planet, they're telling us it's, it's time to pay attention. I want to say something I hope you hear very clearly. It's only political if you make it political. What I'm doing is I'm listening to scientists. And when some of the smartest people on the planet tell me something, I think that's important to pay attention to. And so, of course, it will, be, it will continue to be political in America. Here's the good news. I don't know if you know this or not. A couple of years ago, one of the most conservative members of Congress from Florida um, put together a climate change action plan. And there are about two dozen conservative Republican congresspeople who are on this team beginning to, and, and of course, in their way, of course, if Democrats and Republican proposals, they're going to be a lot different. And there's going to be arguing over that, and that's just politics, and that's the way it works. But for these guys, including some really conservative members of Congress, they're not denying the evidence. The congressman in Florida is listening to NASA. And so there, there are going to be different proposals, but it means we're, we're at the place now where, as a people, we're starting to listen to the scientists and starting to look for a way forward on both you know, the Republican and the Democrat sides. That's good news. And so why is it that, you know, when some people think it's boring to talk about faith and science, why is it so important? Well, if you're raised in an environment where you're taught that 95% of the scientists in the world are in a vast conspiracy to promote a lie from the devil, that evolution, you know, is meant to be an attack on the Bible, then you're probably going to distrust science in a lot of ways, including even medical science. But if you have a view of scripture that allows for literary craftsmanship and, and poetry and, and you realize that these authors are not trying to answer scientific questions, they're not asking about you know, evolution and the solar system, they're answering theological questions that were meant to teach their kids why we observe the Sabbath and who, who humans are and who God is. And no, it's not just Pharaoh who's created in the image of God, but so are you then that has a profound effect on the way you view the world. You are not trash. Your brain is not trash. Here's the Ryan Gear paraphrase. You don't suck. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? That God has created you in God's image, 
with dignity and worth, including your brain, including your reason, with all of our disagreements and, and divisions? Well, we all have different ideas. By the way, Republicans and Democrats have different ideas. Do you realize that Republicans and Democrats are both created in God's image? And that we can't just dispatch of each other and hate each other like we're taught to do in our culture? That's also good news. It's good news for our future. I want to close with this. Back when I was in college, the same college I talked about, I was coming to uh, the end, you know, senior year, and uh, had applied for an internship at, um, and this sounds just ridiculous to say, but it was kind of like the celebrity church in the denomination. Sounds completely ridiculous, because it is. But I had applied for this internship at this kind of celebrity church where there were, you know, really influential pastors, and it was all a big deal. And, and uh, I applied for this internship, and uh, on a Saturday morning, uh, one of my professors at this college knocked on the door of my dorm. I answered the door in my underwear, which I'm sure inspired confidence in my professor that I was really headed places in life. And he, he knocked on the door and he said, he's like, I, I, got, I got this letter. You got the internship. And I'm like, I'm sorry. And then I, you know, man, that's amazing. And And... I remember the feeling that washed over me that somebody that I think is really important and a church that I think is really important, again, as ridiculous as it is, they have accepted me. I thought, you know, maybe I won't get this, but I think I have something to offer. I want to I apply for this. and I, I don't know, though, you know. And, and to get an acceptance letter, I still look back on that as a watershed moment in my life where that really meant something to me. That, that feeling that washed over me of being accepted and that I had value and that somebody thinks that I have a contribution to make with my abilities and my brain and my, you know, my approach and they would say to me, yeah, we want you on the team. That was a feeling that I can still feel it right now. I can still remember how I felt And if in this church or in this series, we could do this, we would have accomplished an amazing goal. When you think of God or the Bible, if that feeling of acceptance could wash over you, that you're okay, nobody's perfect. That's, that's, hey, Jesus is, that's what redemption is. That's what salvation is. That's why we're here. You're not trash. God's, you're blessed. You're dignified. You're wanted. You have a contribution to make. Your brain, your talent, your abilities. You, I'm not talking about the person next to you either. I'm talking to you. Who you are. Everything about you. There's an acceptance letter. And, and God says, I, I want you to be my SVP. To partner with me. And the way that you are gifted to do uniquely and partner with me to live out your purpose in this world. If we could hear the words God or Bible, and we, you could have that feeling of, of that acceptance letter wash over you, oh, now we're cooking with gas. If that's what we could do in this church, because that's the message of Genesis. It's not meant to be pitting science against faith and thinking people have to just surrender faith to, you know, to, to fundamentalists who are, you know, we love them too. God loves them too. But there's more than that. And in, think, in thinking, compassionate people can take the Bible seriously. And your brain is a good thing that God has created you with.